0: Today, I'll be reading for you and preaching for you out of Nehemiah chapter three. But for the beginning of our time in reading, I'm only going to read the first 12 verses of chapter three. And then I will also be reading for you out of 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 27. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then Elisha, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests. And they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hanel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hagaz, repaired. And next to them, Mashulam, the son of Barachiah, the son of Mashazabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Baniah, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoahites, repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Joadah, the son of Pasna, and Mashulam, the son of Bosadiah, "'repaired the gate of Yeshannana, "'And they laid its beams and set its doors, "'its bolts and its bars. "'And next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, "'and Jidon, the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon, "'and Mishpah, the seat of the governor "'of the province beyond the river. "'Next to them Uzel the son of Harakiah, "'goldsmiths repaired.' Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Refaniah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jedai, the son of Harbuth, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hatush, the son of Hashabaniah, repaired. Malchajah, the son of Haram and Hush Hashub, the son of Pehath-Moab, repaired another section in the tower of the ovens. Next to Shalom, the son of Hailashesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Now, out of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 12 through 27. For just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. Jews and Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not the hand, I do not belong to the body that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make, any, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, were, where would, would the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? Body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our presentable unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which are which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, and there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, All suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this account of the temple walls being built by your people. We thank you, Father, for this reminder of who we are in the eternal temple of your Son. Father, help us to see these things this day, and as we have already mentioned, help us to see nothing but Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Sophia asked me this morning during breakfast if this was going to be a hard passage to preach from. And in some respects, it was a little daunting to see both this particular passage and a couple of other passages where uh, there is this kind of record-keeping account. Now, I'm not certain yet in the other parts of this book where we have those kinds of details, and I have not gone back and preached through Ezra as well, where there are also very similar types of details of names and locations and things of that nature. But in this particular portion in Nehemiah 3, I think it is actually an easier passage to preach than some because it's very simple, and it's an image, and it's a picture And all of the things that you see here, the names and the locations and the functions, are very much for the purposes of encouraging God's people. Nehemiah put this particular chapter before some of the actual activity and the narrative that is going to occur. This is an encouragement for the reader. It is not so much there for the purposes of encouraging the participants of this story as much as it is there for you as you hear this account to be encouraged that God will accomplish his task and then go through the actual story of how God does that. Now, we as Christians in this age, and I mention this very often in the pulpit, that we are those on this side of the gospel We are on this side of the gift of the New Testament that we have the answers. We already have the answers. We get to look in the back of the textbook and we see the answers and we know already that there is something very hopeful for us in this process and in ultimately the end of this process. This is what this particular chapter is here for. It is a chapter to create an image for you, That is to encourage you, number one, that God is the one who strengthens his people. And then secondly, it is here to teach us how God is the one who equips his people. And then lastly, we will see here as we go through this whole process of seeing the encouragement of his strengthening and his equipping, we understand that this is how God saves his people you may think you got all of that out of that particular chapter, and I didn't even read the whole chapter. I hope you did take a chance to read the chapter before we got here, and, and I'm sure I butchered up some of the names, even though I've listened to this chapter over and over and over again, just so that it would hopefully not butcher up the names of these particular people of God, um, that we may actually get a chance. I mean, I wonder sometimes, you know, how long will it take for us to meet everybody <laughs> that belongs? Um, to the kingdom of God, but um, hopefully I'll get a chance to maybe be corrected. I don't know. I don't know once you go to heaven if you can get all the names right at that point, or you'll have to learn them. I'm not sure exactly what happens there, but it'd be nice to be corrected on some of these particular names, especially how many uh uhs, ayahs do you put in there, and um, I'm sure that if I hear it enough, maybe I'll get it right eventually. I have eternity to, to actually try it out. But the answer when I say that this chapter is pretty much the answers to the question, the very first couple of verses um, goes ahead and gives us what our greatest hope is. If you notice here, the very first thing that we see in chapter one, I mean, in chapter three, verse one, it says, then Elisha, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priest, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred and as far as the Tower of Hanel. Here in the beginning of this description of what was being done to the temple walls, we see here we start with the very top of, if you could look at on map, and it's arranged in a north to south type configuration. It actually is going, the order of this particular description is going counterclockwise, not in a perfect circle, even though I named the sermon Circle the Wagons. It's actually, if you, I don't know if you can follow my finger or not, but it's kind of like, like this. <laughs> and it kind of looks like that. I don't know you're not going to memorize that, but you know, if you look at your Bible pictures, maybe you can see that. And it's not even really a perfect understanding of that because historically we don't know for sure and we're trying to understand where all of these particular walls are and archaeologists are looking at different phases of the temple and the temple walls and there were additions and renovations being done but it's generally from what we see here in the description that nehemiah is explaining to us is that it started at the very north now interestingly enough the very north part of the gate is the most vulnerable part of the gate because it is the area where you are most vulnerable for attack. But at the same time, at the very northern part of the gate is where there is the, she- the walls, is the Sheep Gate. And we have here Elisha, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the other priest, and they restored and rebuilt the Sheep Gate. Hopefully you'll already see here that this is the sheep gate where they would bring in the sheep that were for the sacrifices. The beginning of this account of the restoration of the walls for the temple begins with at our most vulnerable spot, but also at the place that points to our salvation and our greatest hope he begins this particular understanding of all of these people working together in the restoration of the temple walls starts with our greatest hope, pointing to ultimately our Messiah, Jesus Christ. It starts with the head. And then it goes through and it goes all the way around in a circle, in a continuous circle, making sure to use words and descriptions that is keeping everything tightly, interwoven showing all of the diversity of all of the people of God and the function of God and also the different gates and openings and accesses to this particular temple all the way back to the very head to the sheep gate. Here we have Nehemiah highlighting the Messiah and the head of the church. That's why i read 1 Corinthians 12 at the same time as reading this first part of chapter three because I want us to see what I believe the whole point of this particular narrative is for us to see how God is building his temple with his people and that the people here and the function that they have is actually the more important part than the actual stones and materials themselves. That God is the one that has provided these people and using these people to build his ultimate temple. The wonderful thing for us as Christians is that we have been interwoven in with the temple that is being described here by these particular names of these people. These are fellow church members of the great kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so for whoever would have read chapter three after the time that Nehemiah would have written this, it would have been encouragement to them, but even greater of an encouragement to us that these are our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ because it begins with the high priest at the sheep gate, which points... Jesus Christ. I'm just going to go through, and there's, there, we could go into deep studies of every one of these particular gates, of each one of these particular people, but I, I want to just kind of go through and just highlight some of the things, and you might go, oh, he missed this person, or he missed that particular component, and that that's likely to happen today, but it's important for us to, to at least come away from here today to understand this great diversity and to think about all of these particular names. These are actual individuals that God Found very important to put into this particular book for us to remember, because he wants us to remember that he is the one who puts the names of his people in his book. In the book, our great book that we look forward to seeing our names is the great book of life, the Lamb's Book of Life. And so these are people who are there with us. And so we look at Elisha, the high priest, who is representative and pointing to Jesus Christ. Here at the Sheep Gate, the only particular gate that gets this special kind, a special kind of consecration. We also see the Tower of Hanel and the Tower of Hundred. Now the reason why those are there, again, it's just showing that this is an area was very important for them because it's a very vulnerable location. And so this was a lookout place. And as we consider the work of the church and we consider our own lives, that this is the first place that we should go just like it was the first place for Nehemiah to go. Because this is the place where we're most vulnerable, that everything else can crumble at this particular location if we are not first relying on the sacrifice for our sins. This is the place that we are most vulnerable because it is a reminder of our sins. It is a reminder of our greatest enemy. It is the place that we need to be on the most lookout beyond any other place that we would look on this wall. Our same lives is the same way. First of all, for all of us, are you one who relies on the blood of Jesus Christ? There are a lot of things that we can do in our lives we need to make sure that we're getting good input from things in our brain, that we're filling ourselves with pure and righteous things. We need to be making sure to clean our lives of bad activities, and we'll be talking about some of that. We need to be, make sure that we have nourishing components and that we're interwoven with good people in our life. But if we do not have foremost in our lives the hope of Jesus Christ, And just like I said, the vulnerability of where we are there, we are already defeated because we begin this story in reminding ourselves that we are defeated because of sin and our only salvation is that which is represented in this high priest and in these sheep. And then we go around and then we see the fish gate. Now the fish gate is named that because of, it's obvious, it's not the place where all the fish came in, but it's a place of market, it's a place of food, it's a place of nourishing and and i guess it's where they had the merchants that had more fish and there were other things going on there if you would notice and as we finished a circle there's there's merchants on both sides of the sheep gate and and how the wall is when we get done we'll come back through and there's more merchants involved on the east side yeah, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to do this in a mirror shape for you. <laughs> so, so we're going to start with going around the west side of the wall and then we'll end with the east side because that's how Nehemiah is doing it. And so there's merchants. And, and for us, we also as we consider what Jesus did with the fish in the New Testament, we know that he is one who feeds us and he provides for us. That as we rest in his salvation, we also need to rest in his word rest in the things that he delights to feed his people with that man cannot live by bread alone but we do live by the things that God feeds us and it's both a physical nature but a spiritual nature that we must have this understanding that we must protect and restore that are the things that are coming into us that we see that with all of the gates we see these access points If you remember when Nehemiah was crying and he was weeping and and considering, he was talking about how the gates were burned and destroyed because it creates this vulnerability. And all of these particular gates are very important for the overall kingdom of God, that if there's a breach in any of these particular areas, it has an effect on the whole of God's people. And so all of these are important. If there's something missing in one then it's going to affect the people who are working on the other side. So just as we saw there in Corinthians, that we can't say, well, this one's not so important. We can ignore this one. They all require restoration. And we, too, need to think about the holistic element of all of our lives that, yes, first foremost, we must be resting in Jesus Christ, But there are many different parts and diverse ways that God nourishes us and builds our kingdom, and we are full of a diverse amount of people, and we need to be thinking about how those are places of vulnerability, but also places of our nourishment and our strength. And so we have Hassaniah's sons and Merimoth and Meshulam, that they're involved in Repairing and restoring that particular gate, we see these details of how it talks about the door and the beams and the bolts and the bars. these construction materials that you get from the sense of it the strength there 's restoration of these things, things that were provided for for them from artaxerxes. these are things that came from how God is showing that he is commanding over all of the world, that he even uses pagan kings to go about providing these things to build his kingdom. These are the resources of God being put in play for the kingdom of God. You'll see Merimoth and Mashulam later on as we go further along that they actually have another place along the wall that they're also working with. And though we're going to have plenty of adversity and negativity in the following chapters, We have this one little glimmer of a reminder that even though we see all of this unity amongst the diversity, that here with the Tekoaites, it says that their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Doesn't get into a lot of details there. Doesn't really explain why they did what they did. But even though even in the midst of all of the people and all of these diverse people and the, how great and wonderful we see this combination and teamwork happening, that there are some in the midst that they feel like it, this kind of work is below them. It's interesting wording there. It says they would not stoop to serve their Lord. They would not serve. They would not humble themselves to do this great work. Now, I think we need to think about this as well. I know in our Wednesday night studies, we talk about how the work of the church, the work of the kingdom of God, that our God foremost is the greatest thing in our, should be the greatest thing in our minds and hearts. And that if we truly believe what he says about his church, that it should be where our devotion is in the church, in the kingdom of God. But it's going to require, just as our husband, just as our Savior did, in his humility, it requires us to serve. We see here that there is a breach in the wall of these people, that there is the lack of humility, that they took their earthly positions to be too great to be a servant in the eternal role that they had. And so therefore, they would not stoop to serve their Lord, which has been defined as the Lord from all accounts that they can consider. So we too must look at that particular breach and temptation to find the things of this world, the pleasures, the positions, the identities that we receive in this world to be too important for us to take the time and the energy and effort to serve our Lord. And then we go to Joeda and another mashulam, a different Meshulam. We see that they are working there at the gate of Yashonah. <laughs> Yash- Yashonah. And what that is, is a gate of another location. It's an entrance and access to a neighboring location. And it's interesting that Nehemiah has this here. It's the name of a gate, but it gets its identity because it is connected to the things that are from outside of the particular temple area, the city of David, and the whole area of, of within side of the walls. It draws our attention to the neighbors. And we think about how we are a representative of Christ and how we're a representative of this great temple that one of our access points of importance that we need to make sure is shored up is our focus toward our neighbor. That not only are we focused on the fish gate for the things that are coming into and nourishing us, that we need to be thinking about the transition to our neighboring locations, both as the potential of an enemy, but also for our access of being able to bring the kingdom of God to our neighbors. This gate was also reinforced and strengthened by the new doors, by new beams, by bars and bolts. And then we have a section here where we see a description of people that point out different locations. As we consider going outside and considering our neighbors, we see that there were neighboring locations that were people representative of these neighboring locations that were there to be a part of this building, of this wall. We see Mithlathiah, the Gibeonite, Jadon, the Marathonite. We see men of, the, of Gibeon and Mizpah, which is the seat of the governor, <clears throat> which is, um, I can't remember which governor, if it was Tobiah or um, the other guy. I should have put a note here. But there were people even coming from the neighboring places where the leaders there were enemies or being adversaries to God's people. So we think about how geographically God used not only people that came from, I mean, came from the resources of Artaxerxes, but also the neighbors came and helped build. And then we see this very unique description of we have a goldsmiths and perfumers. You have Uzel and Hananiah, and I think this is interesting because we see that goldsmiths and perfumers, they would not necessarily be very focused on doing construction work for walls, perfumers particularly, that is not within their typical classification of what their occupation is. And we, we see this again, we have goldsmiths in a second way too, but from all commentaries that I see that they believe that Nehemiah, highlighted these particular occupations of these people to show that (coughs) they were about work that they were not accustomed to do because it was important for them to be in the overarching work of of the securing of the temple. And so they were doing stuff that maybe they weren't as familiar with, not saying that perfumers and goldsmiths could not do these kind of things, but it was Highlighted here from what all understanding is, is to say that sometimes we are doing things in the sake of the building of the kingdom that is outside of our norm. I know we had the, we have kind of like a little micro example of that with what we've been doing here in this building. We have some of us have experience in construction and some of us don't, but we all have different levels of understanding and we all jumped in and we were able to do things. Even young kids who had no experience were involved in doing things that were important for a place for us to come and worship. We have to humble ourselves and to understand that yes, we may have a particular profession or occupation or we may be experts or educated in certain things, but sometimes God calls us at at certain circumstances and times to do things outside of our comfort zone we also see a lot of examples here of people who were rulers of different jurisdictions. They were different types of governors or sub governors. We have uh, Raphaniah, the ruler of half of Jerusalem, that he is there. He did not find that his high estate, he was not like the nobles of the Tekoaites, that did not feel like it was um, up to his particular standard to serve. He would serve even in light of or even connected to his particular role as a ruler in half of Jerusalem. We see that by the time we're at this particular part, we're at a place where there is a broad wall. It's a, it's a, a stronger point of the wall. We also see that there were people who were uh, um, connected to their work that was very near to their home. We, we, not only do we have moments where we're looking outside of the wall, we're looking at people, who are restoring things that were right next to their own homes. And so if you think about that in light of our own lives that, yes, sometimes we're thinking and praying for things as far as I ran, but we definitely need to be restoring and strengthening those particular vulnerabilities that are right here near our homes. It's highlighting all kinds of different directions for us as we go around this whole wall, all of these particular places that we need to be looking for vulnerabilities but also strengthening those particular weaknesses and closing off those particular breaches. We have Shalom, another ruler of the other half of Jerusalem. It also shows that his daughters were involved in this construction work. Many commentators believe that it was likely that he did not have sons, and so it highlighted that this was a full community work, that even Shalom had his daughters out doing this particular work work that some people might say, well, this would have been more for men, but no, there were these women involved in this same kind of restoring work, this physical construction work of doing this wall. We can see here that God in his word is wanting us to understand the fullness of the involvement of God's people in this particular work. Then we see the inhabitants of Zenoa near the valley gate, and then the valley gate is about 500 yards from the dung gate. We see from the peak to the very bottom, we see at the very top this vulnerability in this place that points to our sacrifice. And then by the time we get all the way to the very south part of the wall, we see this place, which is a place where they took the, it's like the access to their dump. It's, it's the garbage gate. And when we think about what we just read out of Corinthians, where it says that the the less desirable or the unpresentable parts of the body will get the greatest glory, sometimes we need to think about the things that, how we need to get out the waste. We need to get out the refuge. And there are things in our lives that are very unpresentable, but it is very important that that gate is functional. Because if that gate is not functional then you can't get out the garbage and then the garbage continues to build up and it can create sickness it can create disease and it can create death it's a very practical component you can go over there and, and now in Israel and you can find they have they have a sign that says dungate And you can see the actual gate that they're talking about. This is a very important gate. We know that just from our own local situation in Bristol, that if we are not careful with what's going on with our garbage, it can cause great harm to us in the long run. And because it was mismanaged and more garbage was coming in for a certain profit, that there are people that have actually been getting sick in Bristol, and there's been lawsuits, and now there's millions of dollars of state money having to come in and try to restore and to rebuild our dungate in Bristol before people start dying from this. We too must see this as an example for us, that in the church, in the, our families' lives, in our community, in our nation, we must acknowledge that which is, that that should be removed from us, things that are impure and things that are nothing but death and destruction need to be removed. And if we hold on to these things, or we are not regularly about the removal of these things in our lives, they will just simply build up. We talk a lot, or we used to talk a lot about how we need to keep short accounts with one another because that will continue to build up. And that's, it's an understanding that we are in a place in our lives, even here now, even though we have a Savior, and even though we understand the gospel, that we build up our accounts because we still continue to sin against each other. We need to be people who are regularly involved in taking out the trash through regular repentance in our life. Just because we have the Lamb does not mean that We're at a place where there is no waste that needs to be removed. We need to continue to be practicing that. And as Martin Luther says, that we need to be continually repenting, that our life of a Christian is a continual repentance. And as we begin to go around, we find the fountain gate, which is close to a pool and close to a garden. We see Shalom, the ruler of Mizpah, is the one who is working on the fountain gate. It's just like the word says there, it's a gate that is near an access point of water. We need to be thinking about having the pure water of our, of our hope, which is the word, pouring into our lives. That gate needs to be functional. There needs to be a maintenance there. There needs to be a concern there that we are protecting that particular gate just as we are looking to get things out of our life that is wasteful and hurtful. We want to make sure that we are bringing things that are purifying and cleansing coming into our life, nourishing. Just as Maharus was talking about our times in worship, we must protect this time. We must cherish this time. If we remove ourselves from the places where God says that our nourishment comes from, we will be famished. We'll be in the desert continually. (laughs) Imagine. Just imagine how things would really turn around if if we if the dung gate was closed and there was no removal of the waste, and the the fountain gate was messed up or was polluted or was somehow another stopping the flow of the of the fresh water, it wouldn't take very long for our lives to be destroyed. We must be protecting that which flows in and understanding that Jesus Christ is our living waters. And as we were going around at the very southwest part of the wall, we see that a lot of the construction was occurring opposite of the tombs of David and the mighty men. And what you see here is you're reminded of certain history. You're reminded of the things of the past. Just as we are going to Jesus Christ for our living water, we are to remember the things that God has done. We are to protect those particular memories. We are to, to protect the stories that God has shown forth before his people, this one reason why we are preaching out of Nehemiah is for us to remember what God has done. That is a part of our strengthening and our nourishing. If, if you remember Nehemiah, as he was weeping, he was remembering how the tombs and how the, the burial places of the fathers and how they were in disarray and how things were being destroyed, That should be memorials to what God has done for his people. We are to remember these things. We should be a people of history. You cannot be a Christian in faithfulness if you're not one who is given to history. You want to have an interest in the history of God because it reminds us and encourages us time and time again as we deal with the present of how God works with his people Moving on around, we see again Benjamin and Hassab working the opposite of their house. Azariah working near his house. And then we see Benui, who is working near the buttress and the king's guard. I don't know how, how familiar you are with what a buttress is, but a buttress is a reinforcement in a wall. It's one thing to have a wall, but sometimes, especially in places of vulnerability, there has to be a strengthening of that with buttresses. If you go and look at certain cathedrals, uh, old cathedrals, and even some new modern ones, because they're, they're wanting to build these cathedrals. like. Well, we can even look here. We have this, ca- this open ceiling. And the only way to be able to do that is that you've got to be able to properly distribute the loads and keep the strength of the roof without it collapsing when there is snow and things on top of it and also its own load. So there has to be some kind of reinforcement because typically you would have columns or something down below. So if you're gonna have a big cathedral, you either have to have buttresses that are on the outside of the wall that hold the walls up or you have to have these things that we have here, which are called tie rods that are holding the walls together. They're reinforcements. It's one thing to have the walls, but there has to be reinforcements. Here, that we're having to do repairs to the buttresses to strengthen the buttresses that are strengthening the walls. It's one thing to have walls up in our lives to protect us from our vulnerabilities, but there are certain places in our walls that have greater vulnerabilities and they require greater strengthening. We need to have buttresses in our lives. We need to be aware of the weak points We could have built up walls. They could have built walls up in this particular building here, but if they did not have those tie rods there, the walls would not be enough and the roof would collapse. We must be aware of those kinds of things. We need to be engineers of our own lives to understand where we need particular extra reinforcement. Sometimes it's How who the people we are around or the activities that we're involved in, or maybe sometimes it might be the foods that we eat, or it might be just circumstances that we may find ourselves in. We need to always be working toward the things that God has taught us to be engineers so that we may have buttresses in protecting those walls. We have another place where we have the water gate, another access point of water. And then we have, as we're going on up to the top, we see this place called the Ophnil. As we get closer to the end of chapter 3, that is a raised portion of land. It's kind of a knoll. And here we're seeing again that this is a strategic location. The walls around the Ophnil needed to be reinforced because we're coming back around to the places of our greatest vulnerabilities we need again to remember and to remind ourselves that we are still sinners in need of a savior. We have the horse gate. We have more houses. We see more tevites. Te- te- we see more priests as we come around. A lot of the people who are working over on the northwest side are going to be some of the same people working over on the northeast side. The horse gate is obvious. It's a place where there's going to be more activity um, for not only just people's traffic, but also for the reinforcement of military. That's why we have more of the towers, more towers built over in that direction as well. And then interwoven with defenses and more houses, we have more merchants. We have a mustard gate, which is not for um, like ammunition, but it's the gathering of people. Some people even call it the parade gate. And so it is a place where if you were going to battle, you would be um, having a place where there could be a larger number of people exiting the gate. This is in greater preparation for being able to be not only in the defensive, but also in the offensive. And we see goldsmiths and merchants all surrounding in that particular location. What we see throughout this whole, and I know there's a lot of little details, but it's details that God gave us because what it's highlighting for us is that we are like this today, that God is using a great diversity of a lot of different kinds of people to bring about the furthering of his kingdom. And we need to be careful that we are not like the nobles of the Teokites. We need to remember Romans chapter 12, verse three through five, that says, for by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, the many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. This has great communication for us in many different areas of our life. Not only are we to be thinking about how our earthly roles or our earthly identity is not too great to be in a position of servitude, but we need to remember each other. It's talking about how we are many members with each other, Throughout this whole chapter, it keeps saying "and next to, and next to, and next to. It's creating a chain. It's creating a wall, an unseparated wall of people working through the building of the kingdom of God. No one can say, you know what? I'm not holding hands with this particular person. We're going to allow for a breach. And if you think about it, if you allow for a breach wherever you are, because you feel like you're too great or you don't want to be near a particular person or maybe those people's weaknesses don't really fit with your particular interest and your particular comfort zones, that means the breach is gonna be closest to you. So the people that God put in your life, and we've already read in the other, in the Corinthian passage, that God is the one who chooses to put together his particular building method, if God put people in your life, then God put them those people in your life. And you might go, well, I would rather, you know, I'm down here near the Gate, and I don't really like garbage. I want to go work near the Fountain Gate. I like dealing with pools. I like refreshing pools, that would be nice. I could, you know, if I need a drink or if I want to cool off, I want to work near the fountain gate. That seems like that's more my personality. I know myself better. This is where I want to be. Well, you have been appointed to be at a particular place and sometimes your house is right there. And if you're too focused on going up to the fountain gate, you're leaving your house vulnerable. You're leaving yourself up for an attack. We go wherever God puts us and we should not think too highly of ourselves, but we should think with sober judgment according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. If God has put certain people in certain places in your life, it's because he thinks this is where you need to be. This is what he is hoping for. So we must be willing to work with those particular circumstances. Through my studies of this particular chapter, I ran across a story that I was unaware of. Maybe some of you may have heard of this when we're thinking about how we should be humble in our service around the wall, we need to remember that we all had to go through the sheep gate. We all need to have a representative sheep. We need to all be having something in our life that is pointing to the fact that Jesus has died for us. And if we ever think that we're in a place in the wall that is too high to be focused on a lower place in the wall, we need to remember that we all need Jesus. But this particular story has to do with Charlemagne back in the 700s and 800s. And he was a ruler that brought together the Holy Roman Empire. He brought great unity in Europe at that particular time. He was the king of the Franks. And when he died... And they were doing their funeral procession to the cathedral. They get to the cathedral, and the priest is blocking the door and guarding the door. And he says, the priest, or excuse me, the bishop, and the bishop says, who comes? And the heralds answered, Charlemagne, Lord and King of the Holy Roman Empire. And the bishop answering for God said, him I know not. (laughs) who comes? Then the heralds, a bit shaken, answered, Charles, the great and good and honest man of the earth. Again, the bishop answered, him I know not. Who comes? And now completely crushed, the heralds said, Charles, a lowly sinner who begs the gift of Christ. And the bishop said, him I know, enter. We must remember that no matter what great place we have or great circumstance or great hopes we have in our life, that none of them surpass the necessity of Jesus in our own life and how Jesus, who was truly the king and supreme ruler of all things, became a servant who was willing to stoop to serve the Lord, his father, I don't really have much more to say than this. Hopefully the image and the design of the wall itself and all of the different people, I would encourage you to go back and, and maybe be like me, listen to it <laughs> over and over again. You start seeing the people in a different light the more you think about it and you look at the what seems to be sometimes insignificant components being such a necessary part of the overarching work of God. But I do want to close with this particular reading out of Ephesians with all of that image of the wall and all of the different people who were ultimately the focus more so than the wall and how their lives and their particular equipping was so much more important than even the particular gates. I want you to remember what Paul told the church at Ephesus about their particular calling in the great temple of God. He says, starting out in verse one of chapter four, he goes, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. His identity saw that his particular unique distinction, though an apostle, he was a prisoner for the Lord. I therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then verse 11, it says, and he gave apostles and prophets and evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning or by craftiness and deceitful schemes. These are all vulnerable points in the wall for us that need to be reinforced and strengthened by the equipping of God. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined together and held together by every joint in which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Just as the sheep gate was at the very head of the wall, and it all comes back ultimately to Jesus, it is here that we see that Nehemiah is painting for us a picture of the church that these particular people are a part of, that what the sheep represented is Jesus, It's all the same thing, and it's all a part of our necessary calling. We should be grateful to be able to serve in a manner that would be worthy of the calling that we've been given because we all have Christ. We all have been given a gift and a place in this wall, and it is so necessary for us to be thinking about that, not to be thinking too highly of ourselves, but also not to be thinking too less of others, that we would open up the breach, that we would break the gates and be tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and the craftiness of the deceitful schemes of Satan. We must be driven for our love for Christ and our love for one another, remembering that it was for the love of Christ for his bride that he died, and he died for those in whom we are hand in hand with. Let us pray.